Well, good morning. It is now a sunny morning, which is good. By the way, this morning, um, there is a handout in the back. I think somebody stapled them. There were two separate pages. The, uh, the copier disobeyed my desires to make it a two-sided copy. And uh, it would be good if you had both, both sheets. <laughs> So I'm going to do part two of a topical type sermon that I started two weeks ago, and it was titled, Your Work Matters to God. And I started it out with a quote that I'm gonna, I want to repeat, because some of you weren't, probably weren't here, and I really enjoyed it. From It's from uh, one of the books that Dave has put in the discipleship bullet or board out there. It's called Grace at Work by Brian Chappell. It's really good. I would highly, highly recommend it. And he says in early, one of the early chapters uh, a story about Martin Luther. And the story goes... Martin Luther once asked a bricklayer, what are you doing? And the bricklayer replied, I'm laying bricks. Luther then asked the worker beside him, what are you doing? And the bricklayer said, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. I love that. That's really good. That bricklayer that response helped Luther to grasp the reality that every person serves in a holy calling with a holy purpose. In fact, he even said, we ought to have ordination services for bricklayers because Christ is Lord of all. The work you do for him is holy before our God. That's an important tone setting thing. It reminded me too of some of the years when I was working for IBM, an occasional conversation would come up and they would say, what do you do for a living? And I would say, well, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, secretly disguised as an IBM learning consultant. And uh, I think that's a good way to perhaps think about what do, what do we do day after day. Let me do a little bit of a review on the first part of your handout on what we talked about last time. We, we spent a certain amount of time up front in Genesis uh, taking a look at work. And we came out of that discussion with the, the bullets that you see there. The nature of work is good, not evil. We saw that in Genesis 2.18 in the Garden of Eden. We saw God as a worker, and God created man as a worker. And then we saw that the nature of the curse shows that work is not a result of the curse. And I got some feedback on that from a couple of people that were surprised that work existed before 
the curse. It just had never been brought to the forefront of their, their thinking. And work was uh, given before the fall, not after it, but work was also given after it. And God's perspective on work remains positive after the fall. We see that in Genesis 3.23. After the fall, God put him out to cultivate the ground. Work before the curse, work after. The result of the curse was that work was going to be toilsome. We went through some points about work and your job, and we said if Work, if your job means everything to you, it means too much to you. And you shouldn't define yourself by what you do, but rather by who you are. And we see that, we heard that in the song this morning. I don't know if you picked up on that. Who you are is determined by your relationship to, your, to the Lord, not your relationship to your job. And we shouldn't build our significance upon our jobs because... They're unsure and unstable. And then we spend a little bit of time on you have value and your work has value. And we said through work, we serve other people. And we meet our own needs, our needs and our family needs. And we earn money to give to other people, whether those people are local or in foreign missions efforts, and we love God. There's value associated with our work. Now I want to continue that conversation, and I'm going to move to a different part of Scripture uh, to do that. And this is going to be a challenge, because the book is a challenge. I don't know how many, of, how many of you have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes from front to end. Some of you have. Okay. Uh, and I got to tell you, personally, the first time you read through it, you kind of go, what? It's, it's not, a, not an easy book. So I'm going to try and help you grasp better how to read that book. And what is, it, what is it telling us? God wrote it down through Solomon for a reason. <clears throat> so I'm going to spend a little bit of time now giving you a little bit of a, uh, a, a way to consider the kind of literature that it is, because that, that helps you understand better. What is Solomon writing? What is God trying to tell us? And you could say that the book was written by Solomon's personal search to instruct us. And he had the gift of wisdom. And he was, one of the things he struggled with was the problem of internal restlessness and emptiness as he wrestled with the meaning of life and how to live a life fully. Live a life fully in the midst of life's perplexities and inconsistencies. That's, that was his intention, I think. And 
we need to understand that his style of writing was a reflective essay. <clears throat> a reflective essay is a lengthy essay, it's reasoning to a logical conclusion, and it uses a proverbial style of writing. That's very important to understand as you go in and you start to read through it. Now you can, you can, you can kind of get that as you read through it, and I would recommend if you read through it, read through the whole thing. It doesn't take that long, but get the whole, the whole picture. And you can see this reflective style because you'll see the phrases, I saw, I considered, I know, I, 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 a lot of first-person language used in the book. Two-thirds of those, 70 times, two-thirds of those are in the first five chapters. So I'm going to kind of focus on work and the first five chapters of Ecclesiastes to help us understand a little bit better how we should be thinking about work. Now again, you need to understand that he's presenting an argument. And the initial statement of the argument is in chapter 1, when he says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now many times we walk away or we're, we're hearing somebody talk about the book and, and they pretty much do not explain that's the beginning of the argument. That is not the theme of Ecclesiastes. Vanity is not the theme of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you want to know really what that is, you have to go to the end of the book, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. If you go read that, the end of the argument is stated, and he summarizes with his conclusion. He says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because... This applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. After all he wrote in those 12 chapters, that's his conclusion. Now fear is talked about a number of times in the book. Fear of God. In Chapter 3, he says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There's nothing to add to it and nothing to take from it. And God has so worked that people will fear him. He says in chapter 5, in many dreams and many words, there's futility. Rather, fear God. In Ecclesiastes 7, he said, it's good that you grasp one thing while not letting go of the other, for one who fears God comes out with both of them. And then he says in Ecclesiastes 8, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know it will go well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. 
And then he's got his concluding statement at the end. Fear God and keep his commandments. <clears throat> so many times you'll hear people say, well, that's, that's the theme. Fear God and obey his commandments. And I think it is a theme, but I would suggest to you there's another theme. And that theme is joy. Now that should kind of make you step back and go, wait a minute. You just read the beginning of the argument and, and he's saying vanity of vanity, everything's vanity. Where's the joy? Where does that come from? And I think as we go through and look at some of the way the book is laid out and some of the passages, we will see that theme come out. <clears throat> and it's associated with joy in regards to work. And that's why I thought, you know, it would probably be helpful for us to understand from Solomon's point of view, how do we get joy associated with work? Because a lot of times... We don't have joy in work. In fact, in America, 60 to 70 percent of the people in the United States do not like what they do. That's not a good recipe for joy. Here's an example of some passages on joy. Ecclesiastes 2.25. Who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? <clears throat> Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.15, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself <clears throat> in all one's labor. 5.19, he's given, for, uh, furthermore, as for every person to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's also given him the opportunity to enjoy them. Ecclesiastes 8.15, I commended pleasure for there's nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat, drink, and be joyful. There's other passages that talk about joy, joyful enjoyment. But the one thing we've got to be careful about is the way sometimes the passages are misused. It is not eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not stated anywhere in the book. <clears throat> so we've got to we got to watch how how that happens. So let me let me give you a big picture view of the book. Turn to the, the second page of your handout. And I'm going to use something I learned from Walter Kaiser. Walter Kaiser is uh, a pretty well-known theologian, and he had a, a very, very enlightening little commentary called Ecclesiastes, Total Life. <clears throat> and in there, after I had read through a number of times, he helped highlight for me the way that the book is laid out. And Overall, that's on the second page of your handout. So it's really in four parts. And it's, remember, an argument. But the argument is one which is built through the whole book using a variety of sub-arguments. And they all end 
with a particular refrain. So four major parts. Part one are chapters one and two. And the overarching point is he's illustrating the emptiness of life as it appears, concluding that, even, that good things in life cannot be enjoyed apart from God. The second part is chapters 3, 4, and 5. And there he argues the complexities in life cannot be figured out, concluding we should seek to enjoy our labor trusting in the sovereignty of God. The third part, chapters 6, 7, and most of 8, he argues the inequities of life cannot be straightened by us. And he concludes we should not frustrate ourselves trying to straighten them or let their existence rob us from enjoying life. You begin to see the theme of what's going on in the book. And then at the end, chapters part of 8 and all the way through 12, he, he argues the inequities and missing pieces in life should not rob us of life's joys or prevent us from working with all our might, concluding that when all is said and done, our only responsibility is simply to fear God and keep his commandments. <clears throat> so you see, it's not eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. That's not implied or said in any way in the book. The passages are to be considered in the following light. All you do will come under God's scrutiny when it's all said and done. Yet, it's a gift from God to enjoy life and its blessings. The true conclusion that Solomon's trying to share with his readers is that life without God is vanity. That's what's vanity. And so he uses a lot of examples. And he's trying to say life with God is the only way for life to have meaning. There's life under the sun, S-U-N, and that's used like 30 times in the book. Or there's life under the sun, S-O-N. And that's the distinction he's trying to make. <clears throat> life under the sun or under God. He uses the word vanity like 37 times. And he uses words, work, labor, and toil, almost 50 times. So that's what caught my attention with the book in this particular topic that I'm trying to share with you. Your work matters to God. And 50 different times, he's trying to contrast work and toil for the wrong reasons versus work and toil and God's gift and blessing for the right reasons. If you stop with the book of Ecclesiastes, one commentator says, you're going to stay in the shadows. You must move on to the full revelation of the New Testament to have the whole counsel of God. Many of the false cults quote isolated verses from the book to prove their strange doctrines. Isolated verses. That's not the way that you interpret scripture. <clears throat> 
but that's the way sometimes people incorrectly pull things. It's like, it's like the verse you've heard, uh, money's the root of all evil, right? No. No, that's wrong. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's the verse. But it's misquoted. It's misused. And many times, some of the things we see here in Ecclesiastes, the same thing. He's trying to reason about what he sees and what he knows under the sun. Under the sun is from an earthly point of view. We often define ourselves around what we do rather than who we are because our purposes in life are often determined by our jobs. But the haunting question Solomon's trying to do is say, he's posing the question, when I've done my work, what is left? Now, I remember this very clearly when I was working for, for IBM. I worked for IBM for like 32 years. And part of that is IBM means I've been moved. Okay? And so I had been moved from Green Bay down to Chicago, and then eventually from Chicago to here. And this whole, this whole question posing that, that Solomon's into, I remember asking, without even, I wasn't even a believer at the time, but we had to move way out in the suburbs in Chicago because of the cost of housing. The difference between Green Bay and Chicago is like, uh, horrible. So we were 50 miles out from where I worked downtown. So I had to take the Chicago Northwestern train into work every day. I would catch the 4.55 a.m. train going in. I would teach all day. I would take the 7.30 train or the 8.30 train back out, two hours each way. Long days. And I can remember sitting on that train asking, what am I doing? What's this for? What is this all about? It's the same, it's the same argument that Solomon's putting on the table. This is vanity? Well, I didn't use the word vanity. Vanity is like useless or has no meaning. <clears throat> Let's look now at Parts one and parts two, to follow this argument that he uses, because I think it's a, good, it's a good way to think, to think about things. And so I've put on your handout the arguments for part one and part two. The argument in part one goes as follows. There's a reflective argument statement in chapter one, verse two. Then a question is posed in chapter 1, verse 3. The question is reposed at the end of this section in chapter 2, verse 22, and a conclusion is stated. Now, everything in between is part of what he's using as part of the argument until he comes to the conclusion at the end. So, the reflective argument in 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
That's the argument statement. And then he poses a question. <clears throat> what advantage, in verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? I mean, it's a valid question. It was kind of like somewhat related to the question I'm asking while I'm sitting on this stupid train. Ten times I went around the world on the Chicago Northwestern. A lot of train time, a lot of thought time. What advantage does man have in all his work? Now he goes through and he's got a lot of discourse that he gives about things as he pursues that argument and that question. And then he reposes it in 2.22. And he says, after all that he talked about, for what does a man get in all his labor and his striving, which, which he labors under the sun? He's reposing that very same question. So do you see the, the, the front and the back end of the argument and the discussion that he's having? And then he answers it in verses 24, 25, and 26. There is nothing better. Now hang on to that phrase because he uses that many, many times in conjunction with joy and its association with work. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he's given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who's good in God's sight. That's vanity. Not the front part of that verse, the back part of the verse. There is nothing better. And you can have enjoyment, but you can't have true enjoyment without him. That's his point. The word for work here throughout Ecclesiastes is different. The Hebrew word is different than the one that we saw in Genesis two weeks ago. The one for Genesis was a different Hebrew work, and it had more the sense of service, and in some cases almost a kind of worship. The word here in Ecclesiastes that he uses has to do with toil and burdensome and really hard work without much to go for it or with it. So there's a difference. Solomon recommended a man should enjoy its fruits. Eating and drinking are only metaphors for partaking of all its fruits. It's just everyday kinds of things. However, he warned that this was possible only if God enabled one to do so. Let's take a look at part two. We're going to see something similar. Part two is chapters three, four, and five. Again, that section starts with a reflective argument. Chapter 3, verse 1. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. 
That's the argument. He poses a question in 3.9. Here it is again. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which has God, God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. That's the question. And then he reposes it after he goes through a lot of discussion on fruitless, vain things, and he gets to 5.16, and he says in, in B, 16B, so what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. And then he replies, and he gives his refrain and his conclusion in 5.18 through 20. Here again, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Do you see the contrast? Do you get the secondary theme that Ecclesiastes is trying to make? He does the same thing in section 3. In section 3, he ends in verse 815 after he argues about the, the inequities of life. He says, so I commended pleasure. There's nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, to drink, and be merry. This will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. And then there's two other times that he's got that refrain in the book. It is a constant theme that he's making. One commentator writes about section 2, the argument is about time, as stated in, that we saw in the 3.1. <clears throat> the commentator says, that list must have driven Solomon crazy as he searched for significance in the cellar of the secular. Two things become very apparent in the light of the realities mentioned in that section. First, if everything's a part of God's plan and has its right time, I must not be as free as I thought. Someone much larger than me is really calling the shots. The things that will cause me to laugh or to cry, to go to war or stay at home, at peace, are in the final analysis beyond my controllable circumstances. Some of these, to some degree, we can control, but remember three intrusions upon secular wisdom that exist. Death, evil, and chance. And everyone is susceptible to these intrusions. All these things show us 
We're not in control as we might think, think, and we have a choice. Depend upon the one who's in control or try to be captains of our own destiny in a sea of uncertainty and doubt. Even the material things of life, the enjoyable things of life, the relationship we have, the jobs we have, are only of value when given by God. When he says in that section, everything appropriate in its time, it means beautiful in its time. And the things that are given by God are given according to his appropriate timing. The God-shaped hole in man will never be filled by anything apart from what God is. For us, understanding the grace of God allows us to understand that all we have is from him. The capacity to rejoice, the ability to do good, to have good labor is a gift from God. What God does remains forever. No one can ever take from you what God does in you, the privilege of fearing and serving God. So, even though you see in that, that second section arguments about injustice and oppression in society and rivalry and evil envy and living a, li- a long life does not guarantee enjoyment. And in chapter 5, he declares four things. Learn to let God be God. Don't play games with God. Value government. Riches will not survive death, but you will. And so that's why he ends up reposing the question in 5.16. So what's the advantage to him who toils for the wind? And it is to enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun the few years of his life, which God has given him for his reward. So God empowers us to enjoy the blessing he gives, the ability and capacity to enjoy whatever amount of prosperity or lack of prosperity is a gift from God. And while we work and toil hard in earthly things, our attitude is to be one one that allows us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Now, after chapter 5 and chapter 6, the first nine verses, he goes into some people are not able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And he describes those individuals. But that should not be us. Some principles to consider on your sheet. No one can appreciate such elementary things as eating and drinking everyday activities apart from a personal relationship with the living God. When I was on that train, I did not have that. And so what did I have? I had a feeling and a sense of vanity. Vanity, what am I doing and what does it all mean and what's it for? Now, it wasn't too long after that that I got the answer. God saved me when I was 33. And all of a sudden, 
Everything changed. Everything. Second, God alone, not things or wisdom, is the giver of satisfaction and joy. And third, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. We need to consider if God has given the riches, he's also given the gift of enjoyment of riches, whatever riches may mean to you. If, on the other hand, man has hustled for wealth, there is no divine gift of enjoyment. I don't know where every one of you are at, and there's different kinds of work that you do. It could be a business, a profession, could be in the home, uh, could be a ministry. Work can be a rather all-encompassing term. But there is a way, there is a way to get joy and enjoyment from it. And that comes when God empowers it. And it is a gift. And if you have the kind of job or work or profession or ministry or home life with God in it, and you get it married to what you're doing for work, it's awesome. Don't be one of the 60 to 70% of the people in the U.S. who hate what they do. And the only reason they're doing it is for money. That's not what it's about. But we're created to be workers. God was a worker. He created us to be workers. It is supposed to be part of what we do and what we do for God. Notice in 520, he says he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. The question is, what makes your heart glad? Is it things or is it the giver of things? Think about that this week. Is your heart made glad over things or is it made glad about the giver of things? We've been saved to have a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, his son. Solomon asked the question, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? The question that really needs to be asked is, do you know the one who really knows? That's the question. Do you know the one who really knows the answer to that question? <clears throat> so, does Ecclesiastes teach eat, drink, and be merry? No. It does, however, teach we should receive God's blessings and enjoy them while we can. Each of the enjoyment passages is balanced by a death passage. You can go through the book, and every time you see an enjoyment passage, you'll also read a corresponding passage about death. And Solomon's trying to say, in light of the brevity of life and the certainty of death, enjoy God's blessing, the fruits of your labor today, and then use these blessings for his glory. That agrees with what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.17. Solomon's not advising reckless pleasure or drunkenness. He's counseling us to appreciate life and its blessings while we can.
in this book, Grace at Work, he had a section way towards the end called Balance. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to help you balance the way you live and work and think about work. And he quotes from a psalm, Psalm 127. That's on the back of your sheet also. It's one you've heard before. And it's interesting. It's a song of a sense of Solomon. So here's Solomon again, and he's really reiterating some of the points he was making in Ecclesiastes. And it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. You want to sleep better? Give it to the Lord. If you're anxious about work or money or anything, give it to the Lord. He gives to his beloved sleep. Now, Barb would probably argue with that because last night I was up a couple of times and I had anxiety because I'm thinking about this sermon and how difficult it is to convey what what Solomon's saying here in Ecclesiastes. But you give it over to the Lord and then I would fall back asleep. It really works. He goes on to say in this, in this chapter, and I, I can't recommend this book enough. It's really good. It's, it's not thick. It's not too complicated, but it can help turn some of your thoughts in the right direction. Uh, it goes on to say, we're required to acknowledge Jesus' dominion over all things every day. This means we can never exclude him from any space or time in our lives. We do not say to him, Jesus, you can be Lord of my life in church, but the workplace is mine, and I'm the one who makes things happen there. And he goes, no. He is Lord over all, or he is not Lord at all. There's a genuine busyness that flows from dedicated devotion to God's purposes, but it's not a devotion that excludes him. Biblical balance helps us, keeps us available to God. Hellish business, busyness makes us unavailable to God. We're off course when we think to ourselves, <coughs> I'm too busy for the niceties of honoring God. I can't be bothered with prayer. There's no space in my schedule for devotions or worship. I don't have the luxury of time to consider what God's word says about this decision. No. If it's biblically balanced busyness, I should always have time for a spoken prayer to God, or at least a thought 
arrow prayer, requesting his help before I pick up the phone for an important conversation or type a memo for a meeting or plan a conversation <clears throat> with a coworker. God should be in it.